This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's a place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome again, folks. Here we are, Dr. Charles Parker at Core Brain Journal, and this is episode 057, and we have another very interesting guest. We're so pleased to talk with the people that we get a chance to chat with. It's always educational for me personally. I hope it is for you out there in the ethers. This today is Robert McCartney. And Rob, thank you for joining us. We're looking forward to talking to you. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I look forward to sharing my information about my program and and about uh, what's going on in behavioral health for kids. So Rob is, when he mentions his program, I'm going to, you know, it's a little bit of a disclaimer. I have to tell you, I've been over to Barry Robinson Center here in uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and uh, I had I have to hesitate on that. Are you over the line in Norfolk or are you in Virginia Beach? We are actually right at the line, but our hard address is in Norfolk. Oh, it is. Okay. So yeah. it's right there at the line between Virginia Beach and Norfolk. And, and Rob is the CEO, the... Uh, the managing part, person for Barry Robinson Center, a residential uh, treatment center for, used to be just for boys for many years, and now they've introduced a program for girls as well. And I was so impressed when I was over there. We just had some, there was some reason to come over there and I couldn't remember what it was. And we had a great time. Uh, I took an associate over with me and we just met the staff we were uniformly impressed by everything they were doing. The staff was great. The kids were happy, which was quite interesting. Speaking as a guy who's worked in acute care uh, hospitalizations for a long period of time. And it just had a completely different feel than most sites do. So before we get into talking about the site, Rob, let's talk a little bit about who you are as a person, how you got to be where you are, and what would you say sort of the salient features of, of what really changed your life to have to begin to do what you're doing? Well, sure. I've, I've been in, uh, I got my master's of social work from Michigan State University 34 years ago. And I started off in residential treatment, moved in doing some acute work. Um, I did a lot of private practice, um, working with families for many years. Um, had a couple moves. Um, had a divorce, single parent, um, which was a significant piece. Um, got remarried, blended family uh, to Shirley, and she and I just celebrated 20 years. Um, and you know, well, thank you. And I think one of the things our kids were young uh, when we blended the families, and she had two girls the same age as my two boys, so we were the Brady bunch without Alice, and. <laughs> Um, and all the kids, um, you know, have done very well. Um, they're all in their thirties now. And I have some grandkids and my career sort of just sort of uh, percolated along. Shirley and I left Oak Ridge, Tennessee back in 2004, as I started to, at that point with my kids being in college, uh, it was okay for me to start to move up the ladder and take on some more administrative roles. And we ended up in Atlanta and, um, I eventually went to work for one of the uh, big uh, companies um, working in um, the behavioral health field 
and ended up being one of the CEOs in a, um, a residential treatment center. And had some moves up the ranks with them, uh, a for-profit investor-owned company. Uh, I was doing very well with them. And somewhere along the way, um, some things changed for me. And back in, I have to remember the date, in 2010, January 8th, um, I woke up, it's a Friday morning, woke up at 2 in the morning with a voice telling me that I needed to go to the hospital. And so I uh, got in my car, went to the hospital, told them I thought I was having a heart attack. They did all the testing. Everything was clear. But the ER doc said, something's not right. And they did more testing, called the cardiologist. He came in, more testing. He, they said, we should send you home, but they said, something's not right. And they then did a, um, a stress test. And a very long story short, uh, my lateral artery descending, which is also known as the Widowmaker, was 90% blocked. Wow. And so they went in a couple of days later, cardiac cath, which I encourage if anybody has a catheterization to certainly stay awake for it and watch because I found it very interesting. Um, and uh, they put the stent in and opened up my artery. And it was at that point my life sort of changed and made some decisions um, that it was time for me to, um, to not do what I was doing. So uh, I ended up doing some consulting work and uh, then ended up with a friends of mine in Atlanta, uh, uh, David Colley and Jim Johnson, who has, have a good consulting company called the Colley Johnson Group, and was working for them, traveling around with hospitals, working with their emergency rooms on um, flow, because if you have an emergency room today, you have a psych unit. Um, Isn't that Ford, yeah. yeah, and then getting the, the, the patients out and getting them treatment and talking to hospitals about what they could do to manage the emergency room, setting up outpatients, intensive outpatient programs, uh, that while they may not make money, they help empty out the ED was what they're looking for, helping uh, hospitals set up inpatient psych units, um, and, you know, those types of things. And living outside Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, traveling, you know, uh, two weeks out of the month, home a lot, playing a lot of golf. Um, I'm a swimmer, and so I was back in the water, a little competition. Um, so my wife says it's always scary to see 50-year-old men in Speedos. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's why I have poor eyesight. Um, and then I was one day I got a phone call from a recruiter and told me I was interested in a job. If I was interested, and I said, no, I'm pretty good here. And they said, but Rob, it meets all your criteria. And I had four criteria for looking at a job. The first one was, one, uh, closer to my grandkids. The second one was back working um, for a nonprofit, if I was going to go back and make a move, um, or at least not for an investor-owned company. And number three, back working with kids. And four, residential. And so as we're going through this, my grandkids are 10 minutes from where I live now. And so she went, we went check, check, check. And the last one, she said, checkmate. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I, you know, it's one of those things that um, I said, I have to come check it out. Flew down, interviewed with the board. Um, I was on campus. You've seen it. I was uh, sitting next to our chapel um, the, day be the Sunday before my meeting with the board. And I called my wife and said, they're going to hire me. And 
she said, sure they are. And, but I, I could just tell I had come home. Um, the residential program was very similar to one of the first programs I worked in in my career called Star Commonwealth in Michigan. And uh, nice, gorgeous open campus. Um, and I could sense that there were some real opportunities here. So I interviewed with them, um, and they offered me the job. And uh, that's a little bit over four years ago. My first day on the job was August 20th, uh, 2012. And uh, I tell folks that there are many mornings because of the abuse of my youth on my body. I wake up, it's, I'm not sure I want to get out of bed. But there's never been a moment that I've been sitting in this chair as the leader here that I have not wanted to be at work. Um, it's a pretty phenomenal place um, that needed some, some attention. And the opportunity for us to um, focus on working with military families and military kids in the Norfolk area um, was uh, something I wanted to pursue. Let's take and, a moment to really tease that apart a little bit, Rob, yeah. because I, I thought, you know, we do live in a military town and, and we do. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely pleased every time somebody comes in with TRICARE because the military does take care of their own very well, so much better than some of the other managed care plans. And you feel like, okay, we've got a team that we're working with that's used to working as a team. And so tell us about what you told me about that day, about your relationship with TRICARE and, and the military experience. Yeah, the TRICARE relationship has been, uh, has been pretty phenomenal. Uh, when I arrived, we were not a TRICARE provider. Uh, you sort of scratch your head, biggest naval base in the world, and we're not a TRICARE provider. Um, but we applied for TRICARE. People said it would take me a year to get approved. Put the application, I think it was November 26th, and then on December 28th, we got the approval letter. And, um, and since then, it has seriously grown. Um, we have today 75, 80% of our kids are military dependents and they're coming from all over the world. Um, you know, we're, a lot of them are coming locally, a lot of them from Fort Bragg, a lot of referrals from there. Um, but we've had kids from Belgium, from Okinawa. Uh, we just had another kid get a phone call from, um, upstate New York, Fort Drum. Um, so it's, it's been one of those relationships and because of our, being a nonprofit and being able to turn back you know, the money we generate back into the kids, we're able to offer um, a lot of unique opportunities for kids to help them you know, develop mastery and some sense of independence and belonging. You know, things like the Boy Scouts. You know, all kids, when they're having, growing up and developing, you know, you can look at a lot of, if it's Maslow's hierarchy needs, if it's Erickson, Piaget, these kids, but they need issues like they need to have mastery. They need to have opportunities to belong. Um, they need to have some sense of, of, of giving back to others. Uh, maybe generosity is the right word. And then developing a sense of independence. And there's no, no kids are the same. And no families are the same. So the opportunities that kids have and needs, need to have to be able to develop those need to be varied. So with the military kids especially, because of the multiple moves they have, a lot of these things can um, get sidetracked. Mm -hmm. um, the side note is that 
the average military child, if dad or mom is retiring from the military, uh, they're having nine, they go to nine different schools in their life. That's a so key point. Key point. It's, it's, it's huge. And um, there's a great program out there I encourage folks to look into. It's called S2S, Student to Student. And it's in a lot of schools. That's, and that the focus there is to support military children when they come into schools. And you think about the new kid that's coming to school. What happens to the new kid? They get teased. They get bullied. And now that bullying is, is a lot of texting. They become vulnerable. Um, and not all of them. You know, they're, all the kids in the military, like other kids, are sort of on that bell-shaped curve. Uh, some kids do great. They embrace the lifestyle. They embrace the adventure. They just succeed. Um, and some kids do average okay, and then some kids really struggle. And those are the kids that we have the opportunity to work with and that their families struggle. Um, and so what our goal is to give these kids and families an opportunity to have some positive experiences and to start to um, talk about how their family is working with these struggles. Um, I'll give you an example. I'd been here for maybe about six months, and we'd been in our chapel and our choir, and we have, a, we have a choir here called the Voices of Pride, had just got done singing, and a mom came up to me and said, uh, are you in charge? Haven't been in charge a lot the last decade. That's always a loaded question. Yeah. And, you know, okay. I said, yes, I am. And um, usually when I'm telling this with my staff, they start to push Kleenexes over to me. And the mother grabbed my elbow and she said, I want to thank you. This is the first time I've seen my daughter do something normal in three years. And her daughter had been in the choir. And the poignancy of that and the importance of that is, 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 can't be overemphasized, that for the mom, she had a shift at that point of how she'd been experiencing her daughter the last several years. Her daughter was there. Mom started crying. I started crying. Girls started crying. I mean, I don't know there's enough Kleenexes with this. But those are the type of opportunities we try to um, offer with our kids and for that therapeutic moment that can shift. It may be the first time we have a garden. We're doing a garden to table this summer. The first time a kid picks up a tomato or a, um, a cucumber and calls mom and dad and says, I just grew a cucumber and we've cut it and we had it in our salad today. Uh, we have, we're an open sort of door so parents can come join us at lunch um, or at dinner. And so parents will come in and they see their child, you know, in some of the artwork they may have done because uh, we display it in our cafeteria. Uh, and so while we have our traditional therapies for individual work, family work, group work, it's, the, it's often the other opportunities. If it's in the choir, if it's in our Boy Scouts, if it's in the guitar ensemble, if it's doing our equine program, if it's through our pet therapy, um, you know, there's, if it's through our spiritual life program, um, it's, and that's the type of thing that when we're working with our military families and understanding the uniqueness of them, dad and mom's getting deployed in the harm's way. So they not only have these moves and maybe they're coming in, they had high-functioning autism or they have um, depression going on with them. They have maybe ADHD, but they then also have that real fear and anxiety that mom and dad may not come back. 
and that can be very difficult on a healthy family when a child's having problems. It just magnifies it. And so our goal is to uh, offer that opportunity for healing and for to make sure the family knows that uh, there's hope. Rob, you said that so beautifully. I think we just walked into your living room. <laughs> well, it's... you know, you know, I, I I feel very passionate about this place, and uh, and it's yeah. doing a lot of cool work. Well, it definitely shows. Let me ask you this question now. Switching for a moment, we're in the living room, but we've got some people out there wondering. What in the heck is this whole thing with the, the, I think it's a crisis in the country, to tell you the truth, what's going on with structured uh, psychiatric mental health care. I mean, we've got acute care, which can be anywhere from a day to three days, maybe if you're lucky, a week when somebody's acute. And then you've got partial, and then you've got residential. Now, people really understand acute hospitalizations. I think it's pretty simple, you know, to go in get some meds and they go out partial. Yeah, they're there for the day, but they go home at night. But what makes residential useful and and really how does a person differentiate, this is a good residential program, this is something that's gonna work for my child. How do they shop that up, uh, Rob? What would you say about that? Well, I think that the, the first, your last question, maybe is the one that needs to be addressed first. Uh, I was doing a presentation up at John Hopkins the other day, and I asked folks when they thought about residential treatment center, what came what came to their mind, and it was things like scary, um, uh, aggressiveness, uh, restraints, uh, institutional, cold. There is a feeling uh, and, a, and a perception that uh, residential treatment is more like juvenile uh, jail. Yeah. And or more like uh, juvenile boot camps, mm-hmm. and that's not to say there aren't programs like that, and and there are, and it's not to say there are not times when that type of structured program is very much needed to contain the behavior so you can treat the, the psychiatric illnesses that's going on. I think though that a lot of programs, residential programs, tend to be like that because it becomes a little bit easier to manage the program. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tell folks it's not the job of, of residential to train the kids to be good residential kids. <laughs> and But I think a lot of residential programs with their programming and their rules and their expectations, you look at trans, you know, kids lining up and going in a transport line, a lot of rules, and then they get you know, points for not following, uh, points for following, points deducted if, if they don't follow. It becomes about how they're maintaining within the residential program. And I can tell you that how well a kid does in residential program does not necessarily mean that's how well they'll do in the community. So true, um, so true. And, right, and I've had kids who've not done residential who've gone home and they've done, done great. Um, so I think that you start to look at what's of residential treatment center. And uh, historically, and if you understand, residential, most residential programs grew out of orphanages. You know, foster care was coming into play, orphanages weren't needed, and so what do you do with these uh, established programs, if it's uh, Devereaux, if it's uh, Boys Town, where you start to look at, if it's not going to be orphanages, maybe we can be a residential program for kids who need long-term care. So kids would come to a residential program and still be treated like they were in orphanages. We're going to raise your kids, go away, 
keep them for a couple years, two, three years, four years, and they would even graduate from that. We've seen a, a, a steady decrease in that philosophy that in part was pushed by financial uh, issues, long stays are expensive, and then looking at the outcomes weren't being, you know, really um, that great. And so could they decrease the length of stays and get back home and use a lot of wraparound services if it's partial in-home services, see your therapist three days a week. So we started to see length of stays drop. Um, I think when managed care companies came in and started managing the insurances, they were asking for uh, a more qualitative a clinical justification for continued stay, not that there's not a place for them to go, but there's a real need for uh, the intensity. Uh, so for residential, then start to, to continue to change to what is it today? And again, a lot of organizations have, have difficulty changing and change their identity. If we now start to look at that residential um, is not a long-term place. It's not a short-term place. I think a lot of folks would like to see it by that being like a subacute, mm -hmm. 30 days, 60 days, mm -hmm. tends to be longer than that. Um, but our length of stay now is averaging about 140 days. Mm -hmm. Certainly we have some outliers. And one of the reasons I think that length of stay is probably a good place to be is that kids come in, they can honeymoon for 30 days, and then they get into their treatment. The other piece is the kids and their acuity level now, they're on some pretty significant medications. And a lot of kids who've had trouble maintaining in the community have often been loaded with a lot of medication because they're not sure what to do with them. And nobody's been willing to start to take these meds off because they're concerned what the behavior might look like. So you can bring them into residential and you can start to take them off the medication slowly. And then you can watch and get a baseline presentation then the psychiatrist can slowly start to put in medication and we can monitor that and we can manage the behavior. At the same time, we're offering, uh, you offer a full school and uh, psychological testing, you know, and then rec therapy, individual therapy. So while you're looking at some medication issues, you're actually doing treatment. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a place where you come these days and drop your kids and they fix them. Uh, as a parent, uh, with our expectation, is that you're very involved. Well, you know, that. another thing that I think in this, it uh, really is very directly parallel to what you're talking about, which has to do more with um, uh, responsibility and self-mastery, as we were talking about. Right. Uh, but really the idea, I think your numbers, and they're not fresh in my mind, but the way you were approaching restraint and yeah. seclusion. I, I think our, our listeners would love to hear that, to tell you the truth. And I think that's one of the things that we, if, a, if a family of parents are looking for a residential treatment center, they need to find out about the transparency the, the place has regarding restraints and seclusion. And historically, restraints were used because they kept everybody safe. And I just used in quotes. And, and yet restraints, while they can keep people safe, they also hurt people and they hurt people physically and they hurt people emotionally. So one program I took over, they were doing, I want to say it was about 90 restraints a month. It's 48 bed program. 
and the organization actually led the uh, the unit unit actually led the organization on workman's comp cases. In two years, we dropped our restraints by 95%, and we had zero workman's comp. And so it's, it's also, it's not just the kids that get hurt in restraints, it's the staff. And the staff are also traumatized. When you put hands on a child, and the child themselves is traumatized. And so we have kids coming in who probably have some pretty strong trauma histories, and we're re-traumatizing them. So there's a real push to in the in in the field to decrease and eliminate restraints. And um, there's a really good program out there called the Six Core Strategies for Restraint Reduction, and that I started utilizing maybe, gosh, 2005. Um, and it's a SAMHSA uh, program. And it really talks about how you can reduce restraints, and it starts at the very top with leadership, and it can be very effective. And and so we implement that here, and the focus is a restraint is a treatment failure. Simple as that. And so with that model and debriefing every restraint at the end of each shift and really looking at what we could have done different, we've been able to... We eliminated seclusion. Uh, when I got here, one of the first things I did, I said, get the doors off the seclusion door. They said, we need them. I said, figure it out. You're not going to seclude kids anymore. Simple as that. Um, and then the next was, we will be meeting after every restraint. And so we've been able to drop our restraints, just the raw numbers, by about 85%. But the real important thing is we've dropped time minutes in restraint by about that same. Uh, we report any time you restrict a child's movement is a restraint. So if you even do it for a minute, uh, my staff have to report that I was at restraint. And so you look and you work with the kids about um, uh, what can we do to de-escalate? So children carry with them a de-escalation plan so that when a kid starts to act up, the staff can ask them, what can I do to help you? Rather than say, stop doing that, they say, let's look at your de-escalation plan. And that sort of breaks the frame of the potential volatile uh, interaction. Um, well, it breaks it down to interpersonal management as opposed to vertical management. You know, the, the child becomes a part of the solution. Yes. Yeah. Seeing that they are part of the problem, you pro it probably makes sense to get them to be part of the solution. Yeah. And, and furthermore, they've had the creativity to say, this is what's going to work for me. So they're actually planning it, even if it does happen, they're already part of the solution because they've been thinking about ways to manage themselves better than previously. Right. Well, that is so interesting. Now, let me, let me catch a little bit of, this is such an interesting interview. I appreciate your taking the time. And I think it's in a way, I mean, this is a little hokey to say, but I think it's inspirational. I think Really, people need to hear this, and people uh, out there need to know that there are options that work like this. And I think it was reassuring to know you do take referrals from all over the country, and you, you manage out visitation. I thought the yes. way you handled visitation was very well. Tell, tell folks about that, if you will, please. Well, we don't have set visitation hours. So, you know, we, we prefer you not parents to come and interrupting the child's clinical program or the school. But we also understand there's some parents, that's the only time they can come. It, our, our view here is that, you know, mom and dad, we're working for you. 
and you're entrusting your child with us, but it, you have you have control here. Um, and so we sort of set that up. Uh, the other thing is is that when parents come in from out of out of state or out of the area, we have a great relationship um, uh, with a hotel and uh, get a reduced rate. Uh, and if the parents have trouble financially with that, we pick up that cost for them. And we like to. And then if a kid goes on a pass, they can go stay with the, the parents at the hotel if they're ready for an overnight. Uh, but we really encourage. Uh, family involvement and a lot of visiting. Uh, another example, too, what we did is that historically in um, a residential treatment center, one of the biggest places for conflict is in the uh, the unit phone. So the phone's been out in the you know out where everybody can bother you, and kids fight. I miss my phone call. Be quiet. You're too loud. So to address that need, we brought in uh, cell phones. And so, you know, kids are allowed to take the phone into the room. The staff is sort of out there aware of what's going on and then be able to have some privacy to talk to mom or dad. And that just eliminated almost overnight any problem we had around the phone calls. And uh, then you could have two, three or four folks calling parents all at one time. You know, it's so interesting because really what you said, and I, I know you know this, but I think it bears repeating and fleshing out a little bit because what you're doing with the parents is the same thing you're doing with a child. It's let's have you become part of the solution. Let's think about how we can bring the family together and have you articulate what your opinion is, what your thoughts are, and better ways to really involve you in the outcome so that, hey, when they leave, there's the relationship is already established in some more constructive way than perhaps it previously was. Uh, you know, you, you touched on such an important facet of of working with children, um, and that's the parents and the families. When a when a parent brings their child to a residential program, they it's this is not like they woke up. Let's look at this as our first option. There's been multiple psychiatric hospitalizations. There's been problems at school. There's been frustration. Um, and there's been a time sort of a sense of loss of hope and certainly just feeling futile. Um, and I try to meet with every parent when they come in. I'm not totally successful because I'm not here all the time. And one of the things I, I, I validate for them is there's a sense of, as a parent, I have failed. You know, if, if you love your children, care about their, their, their development, you know, if they're not succeeding, you own that as a parent. And, you know, and so you can acknowledge that, but then you can tell them you've made the next step so things can get better. And, you know, some, you have to, you know, sort of own your own stuff before you can move on. And that's sort of the first start. Um, and one of the coolest things I hear from parents is that, you know, we feel hopeful. Yeah. Um, and I get letters um, a lot, and we have a whole notebook full of thank you notes. Uh, but even to watch parents walk around our campus and they come back and they say, everybody here is so nice and they smile yeah. and the kids are smiling and they're playing. And I, and I sit there and I, it's hard for me to understand why wouldn't it be that at every residential program? Yeah. It just, it's, it's a scratch my head because this is about taking care of people who, who have gone through a really rough time. Um, well, you know, that's so true because that is what 
why I've invited you on this on this program because that was true for me. I went in there. It's like, oh my gosh, this is a completely different. And you can feel it not from Rob, the CEO, but from the kids walking around the campus. I mean, it's like this is a residential program. It's a, it's pretty pretty interesting. And then when you actually talk to the staff about how they conceptualize their work and just even a brief conversation. You know, it's different, Rob. Uh, you've lived in a lot of different places. My daughter went to school in UVA. And it's funny because you know, I love Tidewater and I love Tidewater, Virginia. But when you go to UVA in Charlottesville, almost anybody you talk to is going to tell you about Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. And you're going to have this evolved conversation. And, and it was interesting how learned your crew was, how quickly they came up with, well, here's Here's a way to reconceptualize that that particular thought and uh, and action. So it's very 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 uh, compelling. Well, thanks. I, I you know one of the things I I learned early on: surround yourself with really good people, and then people actually think you're smart. <laughs> and and I've been very fortunate. I have I have some very very talented people here who combine with that is is their compassion and their sense of mission. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a good crew. It's, it's, yes. So let me ask you this, Rob, in closing. Well, I just looked at the time. I've so much enjoyed speaking with you. But let's, let's take a little moment to punctuate our conversation with uh, a, a little bit further thought. What would you say, as we're closing out here, would be, uh, a, a key point that you would like to share with the audience about where they go, what they do, ways to conceive. You said a lot already, but what would be a way to punctuate that? Or if you would, uh, we'll certainly have uh, the Barry Robinson Center links on the show notes. Uh, what would you say would be something, the years of experience that you've had, that would be, hey, folks, this is something you need to think about. Well, if you've gotten to the point that you think residential care is needed, um, do your do your research and do your due diligence. Go online, uh, look at the programs, uh, look at the physical plant. But we all know a lot can be done with pictures. Um, take the time and energy if you if you if you can to go visit some programs and visit more than one. You need to get a sense of what is available out there. Um, look for the, are they being transparent? Uh, are they able to tell you about the seclusions? Uh, can you come and tour unannounced? You know, one of the things that we encourage for the Barry Robinson Center is for parents to come visit and they don't have to schedule an appointment. Um, they need to see us how we are and we need to know that people can come at any time. Um, is there an institutional feel for it? Um, you know, uh, rules, regulations, the type of visitation, um, asking questions about restraint, asking questions about seclusion, um, asking questions about docs. You know, do you have a full-time child psychiatrist on staff? Uh, who's going to be managing the medication? Um, just what's the clinical programming? Uh, I think for, but what I encourage parents is, Get comfortable with where your child is going to put their head down that night. Mm. Therapies can be pretty similar, 
But at the end of the day, that direct care staff, what does the room look like? Is it warm? You can tell, a lot. is it clean? Look at the cleanliness of the facility. Um, food, you know, there's going to be good and bad days, but talk about uh, with folks, what's the food like? What's the nutrition? Do they have a nutritionist that's working with the team? I mean, that's, but the big part for a parent, it's like t sending your, your child off to, to college. You go with them, you're helping them unload, partly because as parents, that's what we do, but partly is because we want to know where that child is going to be laying their head. So we want to, we want to meet their RA and the roommates who's going to be engaging with our child. Mm -hmm. And that's what parents need to do and feel comfortable um, with that. The last thing a parent wants is that they're dropping their kid off at a residential program and get a phone call. Your child's been hurt. And then all of a sudden they say, I made, the, I, I made a bad mistake. Cool. The other thing is they can call us. And while we may not be the right place for the child, uh, I have some very senior staff here, and between about four of us, I think we have 2,000 years of work but in this field, but we can probably help guide and find an appropriate placement. Gee, isn't and we that, do that a lot. That's a wonderful offer, Rob. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, we do that a lot, a lot. That's, that's, that's great. So, well, listen, folks, uh, Rob McCartney, thank you so much for taking the time. I think I, I don't think I've ever heard it laid out so carefully and so clearly from anyone I've ever talked to about where to go with residential care. It's just a, been an amazing conversation. And, um, hey, I look forward to seeing you around the campus. Thank you. And uh, everybody's welcome to come visit anytime. Thanks so much, Rob. You have a great day, buddy. Thanks for listening to Corbrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.